Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Tuesday, September 12th. North Korean leader Kim Jong-un has traveled to Russia to meet with President Vladimir Putin. We discuss what's on the agenda of the two communist leaders and get the latest developments on the war between Russia and Ukraine with Marcus Kolga, founder of disinfowatch.org and a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute. It's a unique event aimed at decreasing barriers for anyone who needs their regularly scheduled cervical cancer screening. We get details on Calgary's inaugural Papa Palooza from Dr. Laura Coughlin, event organizer and gynecologist from Avivo Health Alliance. And finally this week, four million Canadians from more than 600 communities across the country will walk, ride, or run to raise funds for critical cancer research. We discuss the annual Terry Fox run with Fred Fox, Terry's older brother and manager of supporter relations with the Terry Fox Foundation. North Korean leader Kim Jong-un plans to travel to Russia soon to meet with President Vladimir Putin. Joining us to discuss this and all the latest in the war is Marcus Kolga, founder of disinfowatch.org and senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad. Good morning, Marcus. Thanks for being back with us. Oh, good morning. Thanks so much for having me on. What's the latest? What details do we know about this trip, Kim Jong-un traveling to Russia? Why? Well, look, we, we know that uh, Kim Jong-un arrived uh, overnight our time uh, in Russia crossing the border. He's, uh, it was expected that he would stop in the large Russian eastern city, Vladivostok, but it seems that his train has zoomed through there and is moving on to uh, what uh, a lot of analysts are predicting is a, um, a space launch facility in Vost, uh, uh, Vostochny, which is uh, about uh, well, several hundred kilometers uh, north of, of Vladivostok. Um, and the fact that he's going there at all would indicate that um, some sort of deal has been struck between Vladimir Putin and, and Kim about um, probably uh, supplying uh, weapons, uh, artillery shells, ammunition uh, from North Korea, shipping them to, to Russia to help them continue to terrorize uh, the Ukrainian people. Um, and in return, uh, it's likely that Russia will be sending some sort of economic aid or um, or some sort of technology to the North Koreans. Uh, both, of course, uh, are completely isolated. And what this seems like is the formation of a new you know, access, uh, access of evil. Um, the, you know, Putin and uh, Kim are their two keys in a totalitarian pod, essentially. Um, Kim is, of course, uh, hasn't traveled abroad. He's, uh, he runs a hermit nation and severely represses his people. And Vladimir Putin, um, I think he can sympathize with Kim. Uh, he is also becoming increasingly isolated on the world stage, um, also engaged in the same sort of violent repression of his own people, uh, suppressing free speech and expression. Anyone who, of course, uh, criticizes the war uh, is, is arrested and thrown into prison. And so these two have uh, a lot uh, in common. And I think what's most remarkable about this is, is that it is a sign of uh, Vladimir Putin's waning uh, profile uh, and prestige on the world stage and, it's, and Russia's growing isolation. You mentioned the isolation, and I was going to say Kim uh, is, is on an island, literally, and, uh, you know, to a certain extent, Putin is on an island when it comes yeah. to, you know, where he is. But I want to bring it back to the side and what the benefit is for Russia, and you mentioned the weapons, sprucing it up in the, in this, uh, as you say, the new, the new axis of evil on the Russian side. How does this, what does this say, and how does it speak to just uh, how many resources Russia still has? Is this going yeah. to spruce up, or is this a desperation move? Well, you know, it's, it's hard to tell. We know that uh, North Korea has a significant stockpile 
of weapons, and it has already been sending some weapons to Russia, also supplying the Wagner Group that I think all of your listeners have been hearing about over the summer. Um, we know that Russia is burning through a lot of ammunition. And this, these aren't smart weapons, and of course, they're not going to be looking for any sort of um, you know, technologically advanced weaponry from North Korea. They're looking at basically anything that can go boom and kill a lot of people. Um, Vladimir Putin is burning through a lot of those weapons, artillery shells, ammunition. Um, there was one report yesterday that suggested that uh, in a year, uh, Vladimir Putin has burnt through 7 million artillery shells. Um, this means he's shooting ten, you know, thousands, perhaps tens of thousands of these shells uh, every day, every week at the Ukrainians. Um, and there is a severe shortage. And so uh, it's likely that he will be asking Kim for some of those artillery shells, whether he can um, fulfill, you know, 7 million is a large number, uh, and we know that uh, Russia itself in its stockpiles right now only has a couple of million. It's unlikely that North Korea has any more. So in, that, in terms of ammunition, it's hard to say what sort of impact this could have. Um, Vladimir Putin may also be looking for North Korean workers. Um, um, Kim, of course, uh, deploys a lot of uh, slave laborers and may send those uh, laborers to Russia to help build more weapons inside Russia. That could have a long-term impact by increasing Russia's capacity to build more of these, more ammunition, more weapons. And third, and this is something that a lot of experts haven't yet uh, thought about, is the fact that Vladimir Putin may be asking for North Korean soldiers. We know mm -hmm. that um, you know Russia has lost a lot of soldiers uh, on its front lines. Morale is very low. Um, and so it's entirely possible, and I would say even likely, that Vladimir Putin would want North Korean soldiers uh, fighting for him uh, against Ukraine. We know that he's gone to other countries of the global south to try and recruit in countries like Africa, even Ethiopia. Um, and there was a recent report that, uh, that Russia had been uh, deploying Cuban uh, soldiers. So uh, that's, that's another area that we should be keeping mm. uh, a very close eye on, and that would benefit uh, Vladimir Putin. All of this to wonder, Marcus, do you think Putin's grip on Russia is as strong, or is he losing that grip slightly, or is that what he's just ho trying to hope, you know, kind of trying to beef up with this? Well, have you got an hour? Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, it's a complicated question. Uh, look, those uh, the oligarchs that have supported him traditionally over the past 20 years are 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 mighty angry at Vladimir Putin because they don't see the strategy in any of this. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, Russia's economy is teetering. In some ways, it is already collapsing. Um, and uh, Russia's prestige has declined. And these oligarchs, they're unable to do business or travel around the world. They're unhappy. They're, they're very credible reports that the knives are out and that they are plotting uh, they have been plotting to replace Vladimir Putin. Now, this is obviously a dangerous game, a deadly game, uh, and the, we saw the consequences when uh, when Evgeny Prigozhin's plane was shot out of the sky the other week. Um, so in terms of the, the elite, um, they are not happy. Uh, the Russian people, um, you know, they have been repressed. Uh, they, it's been made very clear to them that anyone who criticizes the war um, will face arrest and, and prison time, maybe even worse. And so, you know, when any pollsters ask Russians how they feel about it, they sort of either shrug their shoulders or say they, they support the war. I mean, what would you say with a gun pointed to your head? Um, so it's hard to really uh, gauge w what the sentiment is like in Russia. But clearly, um, you know, we know that Russians like their leaders to appear strong, to be strong, for Russia to be strong. 
Um, and uh, Vladimir Putin hasn't been delivering on those fronts. I mean, uh, you know, the fact that he's meeting with the with Kim Jong-un is, uh, you know, I think is a blow to his prestige. The fact that there was an attempted coup uh, in June um, is a blow to his prestige. Um, and uh, overall isolation is a blow to his prestige. So I'm sure that, you know, uh, Vladimir Putin standing with his own people, and certainly amongst the, the elite, um, is, is quite low right now. And I suspect that um, we will see some sort of a change coming, perhaps not in the coming weeks, but certainly in the month and probably within the next year, because uh, Vladimir Putin cannot sustain his position uh, with the way things are going. All right, you mentioned you know, maybe change up in the next year, but before we get there, are, are you talking about change when we see the results of this conflict, or are you talking about change regardless? What do you see over the next few months as we move into the colder months of the year within this conflict? Look, I think in Moscow, politically, um, that's where things, first of all, are, are unsustainable. Uh, Vladimir Putin needs to demonstrate some sort of a win to the security apparatus and to the oligarchs that support him. So far, he's been unable to do that. So this is one of the reasons why he's meeting with, with North Korea. He needs those weapons. He needs potential soldiers. He needs workers to demonstrate to his own people that he is capable, that he didn't make a, a massive mistake in, uh, in uh, invading Ukraine. Um, I'm not sure that Vladimir Putin will be able to demonstrate any sort of gains. I don't think he will make any gains. Um, the, Ukrainian, uh, the Ukrainian army, although the, the counteroffensive has been slow, it has still proven to be resilient. This Ukrainian army is much smaller than the Russian army, yet they are still able to mm -hmm. hold their positions and are still making gains. And we know that there is additional Western weaponry that's being delivered to Ukraine in the coming months. And there's uh, speculation that uh, F-16s may be flying over Ukrainian skies as early as this winter. If that happens, that's a massive game changer. And I'm not sure that Vladimir Putin has the resources or the means um, to address that growing threat to, to his war. So I think things are going to steadily decline, get worse for, for Vladimir Putin. Um, and the one thing that, the, the one threat on that, at least the Ukrainian side, is that Western support starts to waver. That's one thing that um, will not help Ukraine. And that's one thing we need to be careful about is that we keep supporting Ukraine, keep sending it weapons so that it can continue this fight. Fascinating. Thank you so much for breaking it down. As always, Marcus, appreciate your time. Anytime. Thanks for me on. Thank you. Marcus Kolga, founder of disinfowatch.org and senior fellow at the McNaughton Laurier Institute Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad. We remind men to get checked, but we also need to remind women to get regular checkups, and that includes getting a pap test. There's a free preventative health initiative coming to Calgary later this month. Joining us now is gynecologist and high-risk obstetrician at Calgary's Avivo Health Alliance and founder of Papapalooza, Dr. Laura Coughlin. Good morning, Laura. Thanks for bringing with us this morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. I love it. I, f I think you've found a, a fun name to talk about a serious topic. Tell us a little bit about Papa Palooza and how you came up with this idea. Well, firstly, I can't take credit for the idea on its own. Um, it was an initiative that was started in Nanaimo, BC. So two family physicians there were noticing that there were lots and lots of women that were experiencing barriers to getting their routine pap test done and going for their preventative health screening. And so they started it as an event. Um, it sold out or filled up within six hours and wow. so there's a few of us kind of uh, countrywide now that are trying to do the same for our uh, our cities and our jurisdictions so it's interesting because when you talk about 
Papapalooza. You're building an event. I like the sounds of that to get anybody on board. And like Sue said, like the man van, that's a, that's a, a, a parallel we can draw, especially somebody like myself who doesn't have a lot of experience in this area, to be honest with you. <laughs> uh, but it's interesting because if a woman wants to take care of her health, that, that's great. But is part of the issue the fact that we don't have a ton of family doctors right now? Is that uh, impacting something like these uh, tests? Yeah, absolutely. So as a specialist gynecologist, you know, we see patients for numerous different kind of complex gynae type issues. And one of the things we review is when was your last pap test? Are you up to date? And we're just seeing countless patients coming in right now that are behind. And one of the things that they're reporting is that they are having challenges finding a primary care provider, getting into their care provider. Um, I mean, the COVID pandemic didn't help. Mm -hmm. A lot of care was put off. Care was made virtual. You can't really have a virtual pap test. Um, and it's also just not a test that people really want to go in for, right? So you get that reminder ever. Anyway, ever. Right? Yeah. Nobody wants a pap test. No. So you get that reminder in the mail. It's easy to put it to the side. Or maybe you had a poor experience last time, maybe some discomfort. So we're just trying to create this really safe, um, fun if you can call it fun, environment for women to come in where they can have kind of barrier-free, comfortable access by some skilled providers. I mean, explain, obviously not the nitty-gritty because Andy might fall off his chair, but what is the pap test? Why is it so important for the women who are listening out there and the guys who want to remind their lady, hey, this is you need to go in and get it done? Yeah, so it is a cervical cancer screening test. Um, so it's a provincially run program in Alberta um, where we undergo an examination of the ex kind of the outer layer of the cervix. A small little brush is used and we take a sample that gets looked under the microscope um, and we look for abnormal cells, precancerous cells, or unfortunately, sometimes we do find cancerous cells. Um, cervical cancer is common. It's, you know, the precancerous stages are often asymptomatic, which is again, you, you know, why we want to get women in there. You feel good. You don't think you need a pap. Your last one was, was normal. Um, and it is, like I said, very common. So it's the fourth leading cause of cancer among women worldwide. And we can reduce cancer rates and death by cancer from cervical cancer by anywhere from 70 to 80% with routine pap testing. That's okay, amazing. so yeah, if you can break it down a little further for those folks who, who might be, you know, outside and maybe not never had one, how long does the process take for a test? And, and how often should a woman be getting tested? So it's quick. So the actual test itself should be under five minutes. So it's very, very quick. Um, PAP testing should start at age 25 or three years after you start sexual activity, whatever, whatever happens later. So for example, if you've never been sexually active till age 30, you don't need your first PAP test until age 33. It should continue every three years until age 69. Unless you've had an abnormal test or certain medical conditions, then you might have more frequent screening. Has that changed every three years? Uh, the three years has been pretty stable. The guidelines on when to initiate PAP testing, those have changed. Um, so it used to be earlier than 25, but 25 is now the provincial recommendation. And how accurate? They're pretty accurate. So again, nothing is 100%. Um, but if there is any hint of any abnormalities, then you go for further testing, which is called colposcopy, which we actually do little biopsies. Um, and that is considered a diagnostic test. So that's where we would, you know, for sure pick up a, a cancer or precancer. Right. All right, can you tell us a little bit more about myavivahealth.ca and what you're all about? Yeah, so it's a multidisciplinary clinic. Um, so it was started by a group of four gynecologists. So we run our regular gynecology practice as well as a high-risk obstetrics practice. And then we have a group of other providers in that clinic. So we have lactation physicians, women's mental health, pelvic floor physio, circumcision. So it's kind of a one-stop shop um, for women's health. 
And how important is that, uh, sorry to interrupt there, mm-hmm. Sue, how important is that to have that one-stop shop so you're not hopping? Something we talked a lot about and when it, it ties back to the family physician and kind of that shortage, you get the referral and then you have to do uh, go to another specialist, get another referral. Is that one of the appeals here? Is that it is the one-stop shop? Yeah, absolutely. And we're getting great feedback from our patients about it. Um, it also allows better communication among providers, right? So if I'm having a patient go to the lactation physician or go to the pelvic floor physio, I can then communicate directly with them about the patient um, and how they're doing instead of sending them to someone who I don't know and never hearing back and and being able to collaborate with different providers. That's just smart medicine. See, we need to do things differently, and I like that. That's kind of, you know, it seems so easy, but why have we not been doing it that way all along? Um, I know spaces are limited for Papapalooza, and people need, women need to sign up, and I know I have a lot of friends who don't have a family doctor, so they no doubt are behind on getting the pap test. How do we get involved? How do we sign up for Papapalooza? Yeah, so all of the information is on our website, myavivohealth.ca, or our Instagram handle, which is Maya Vivo Health, um, or call our clinic. So our phone number is 403-289-8996. We are hoping that people will actually call and book in appointments just so that we can plan. You know, we do have capacity issues, um, but we're anticipating upwards of about 150 patients or so. That's great. So the sooner you can call in, like I said, BC filled up within six hours and we're anticipating the same. We're already filling up quickly. So please, please call in um, or come to our website to check out more information. Because uh, knowledge is king or in this case, queen, Queen. Mm -hmm. knowledge is queen. um, And something like this, because it's so invasive and like you say, it's not something that people enjoy doing. How important is it for us to talk to our daughters who might be preteens and teens about the process and what might be ahead for them when it comes to their health. Can I just say though, it's not invasive. Like just, I don't want to, well, I don't want women to be scared though, because it, it, it can be. I'm not it's trying not, to scare, but I know that when I go for my test, that's something I don't enjoy. It's not comfortable. I totally agree yeah, with you, enjoy. but I don't want women to be scared of it and think, oh, this is going to be like the most horrendous experience because it, it's just uncomfortable for a couple of minutes. Exactly. And again, you know, everyone has had personal experiences that may, um, you know, make it more uncomfortable for, you know, certain individuals. And that's what we really want to reduce. Um, But it can be done in a really sensitive, comfortable manner. So I would agree. It shouldn't be the most uncomfortable thing Mm -hmm. that you experience. Um, But it is important. You know, again, we don't want people getting pap tests too early. So there's no need for a teenager or something like that to be having a pap test. But it really does open that conversation about safe sexual practices, um, HPV vaccination, mm-hmm. you know, other things we can do to reduce the risk of, of this type of cancer. And how young are the, the young women that you'll be taking at your clinic then? So 20, take- 25 okay. for, for the pap test. And but, then again... But in general, can we take our teenage daughters, Andy and I, and introduce them to your clinic? Yeah, so we, do, we are a referral-based clinic for our gynecology services. Okay, gotcha. So we would request a I referral. See. Excellent. But absolutely. Perfect. I've learned a lot. <laughs> and, uh, you know, in, in you the can end, have a pap test too, but it just different. We'll give you a test. In, yeah. Well, on the pap test. <laughs> in the end, <laughs> I, I do appreciate and I love the one stop shop idea. And Papapalooza, let's make an event out of it. And the awareness is fantastic. Uh, thanks so much for your time. And it's myavivohealth.ca. Yeah, correct. Perfect. And if somebody just uh, texted in, what is it? It's myavivohealth.ca. Thanks so much, Dr. Laura. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Dr. Laura Carlin is a gynecologist and high-risk obstetrician at Calgary's Avivo Health Alliance and founder of Papapalooza. The annual Terry Fox Run is coming up, and 4 million Canadians from more than 600 communities across the country will walk, 
ride or run to raise funds for critical cancer research. Joining us to talk about the impact of the event and Terry's legacy is Fred Fox, brother of Terry Fox and manager of supporter relations with the Terry Fox Foundation. Good morning to you, Fred, and welcome back to the program. Good morning. Great to be with you. Thank you. I'm so glad to have you back. I want to, you know, before we get to this year's run and the impacts that the funds raised uh, have, not just in Canada, but across the globe, I want to talk about Terry's legacy and how it has stood the test of time and still resonates to me when we look at Terry Fox, and I'm a huge fan of Terry and the entire family and what you do, Fred. It does underscore that one person can make a difference. So let's talk about why you think the legacy is still intact 40 years plus. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. Uh, Terry showed us uh, 43 years ago when he was running across Canada uh, that one person can make a difference. Uh, all these years later, the the impact on cancer research, the impact on lives, how Terry inspires so many uh, new generations of uh, school kids to uh, go beyond their own boundaries and the, the challenges that they face. But you know, Terry wanted to uh, impact cancer research in this country when he left Newfoundland 43 years ago. And um, I think people still uh, see Terry pounding out those miles every single day uh, in the way he was and uh, not thinking about himself, but thinking about others. And, and Fred, I mean, all these years later, 43 years ago, as you say, uh, what's it been like for you to be the gatekeeper, to make sure that everybody remembered Terry Fox and, and that we continue to celebrate his legacy and, and the so much good that he did for this country? Yeah, you know, I, I, it, I, I have a very uh, wonderful opportunity to travel across Canada and share Terry's story and and uh, the number one thing when I do this, as our mom did for 25, almost 30 years, is to thank all of those people who are involved with uh, organizing Terry Fox Runs across this country, 650-plus communities, small and large cities, 9, over 9,000 schools. So, you know, when I'm traveling at this time of year, before the, at the, the weekend Terry Fox Run, before school runs, it's, it's about thanking uh, all those people who have kept Terry's legacy alive and, and committed and dedicated their time. I really feel that, and mom thought this way too, that our role is very minor compared to what everybody else is doing. Well, what's interesting is the reach. Of, I have two young kids, Fred, under the age of six in school. They learn all about Terry Fox, the foundation and the run. But but to me, bigger than that, and, and they look at the whole thing as a, a Canadian superhero. Lots of questions surround cancer and those who live with cancer and have passed away from cancer, unfortunately. But the, steward, the stewardship to be a Canadian, because they feel like it's their responsibility, even in the kindergarten level, to take part. That's a huge part of it, isn't it? It, it is. And I think that that's... That, a lot of that comes from Terry's uh, example. When Terry was first diagnosed with cancer in 1977 at the young age of 18, um, you know, he saw other people going through the same thing through his chemotherapy treatments. He's a uh, young and older going through the same thing. Terry would often um, talk about it in his speeches as he was making his way across the country that getting cancer made him a more caring person. And I think that's you know, so much about what Terry did in 1980 was to, to help other people. Terry said the answer is to help others. And I think, you know, through the schools, 
uh, all the Cherry Fox runs, young kids in kindergarten all the way up to senior high school, you know, they, they learn that example from Terry, that, it, you know, you have to think about others, uh, you, you know, to help others. Terry was a humanitarian, and, uh, you know, he's a great example for all those uh, good things that we want uh, to see in our kids. And it's really been quite fascinating, too, to, I mean, to see like a Ryan Reynolds, for example, get on board and talk about the running shoes or the, the cool T-shirts. And, and it's kept Terry current, despite the fact it was 43 years ago. I mean, that's just been fascinating to watch, to keep him sort of top of mind and, and make him always, you know, be the, the next cool thing, even though he, he's been a legacy with us for so long now. Well, yeah, it's kind of cool with the the Ryan Reynolds connection. Uh, you know, he started posting last year on social media, and we've connect we connected with him this past uh, winter, and uh, he's been on board and wearing this year's uh, Terry Fox Run T-shirt. But he talks about you know doing the run and uh, as a six you know in grade six in school. So you know, there's that impact that continues today. I, I always say when I travel and speak to, to school kids that Terry never gets any older. He's always that 21, 22-year-old mm-hmm. kid running across Canada. Uh, young, young kids can connect with him. Um, and again, as I said earlier, Terry's a, a great example. So all of the stuff that we do in connection with the Terry Fox run is because of Canadians. They just love to, to learn more about Terry, love to uh, connect to uh, what he did. The connection, Fred, is interesting. And by the way, speaking with Fred Fox this morning, and uh, this is this is where we're getting prepared for the Terry Fox run, something we as Canadians do annually without even thinking about it anymore. But the connection, this is fantastic because in the city of Calgary, we have the opportunity for 143 days, on the same number of days of Terry's Marathon, to check out the camper van that was used at Heritage Park here. Uh, let's talk about the fact that it is an artifact. It's simply a camper van and what it means to people. What can people expect when they get up and close and personal to this van and what memories come to mind when you think of the van? Yeah, it's pretty cool. Uh, you know, I, I look forward to seeing it again um, when I'm in Calgary tonight. And uh, yeah, it, it's, it's a big part of the Marathon of Hope. Uh, if you, when you, you know, folks see the van, um, they stand outside of it. I think you really realize how small that is. And that's where Terry and Doug, that was their home for, for several months. Uh, Terrell, Terry and his good friend, uh, Doug Allward, and uh, how small it is. Terry slept there. He, uh, he, he went in there to, uh, for security as well, to you know, after long days of running to get some rest. Uh, it, it's quite amazing, but it, that, that van's beautiful. It was renovated by, or restored back in 2007. We toured across the country in 2008, and uh, it's a really a big part of history and, and Terry's Marathon of Hope. Fred, let's talk about this year's Terry Fox Run. Is there anything new? Is uh, And what would you say to people who maybe think about it? And, oh, I did it a long time ago. I don't need to do it again. Why promote th- them doing it again now this year? You know, I think one of the things that Terry was saying during uh, the Marathon of Hope was we'll all be touched by cancer. May not be personally, but uh, possibly a family member, a friend, a neighbor down the street, somebody that we know, uh, somebody you work with. And that's why it was important then to support what Terry was doing. And I think that still applies today. We've come a long ways in uh, 43 years uh, with the cancer research, but there's still more work to be done. So, 
you know, come out for the Terry Fox run. It's called a run, but that's what Terry wanted it to be called. He knew the run would exist uh, a couple months after he passed away, and uh, um, he asked that it be called the Terry Fox run, but it's not a run. It's a walk. It's a, a push a stroller, ride your bike, come out, participate. It's a family family event, and, uh, you know, come out and remember somebody that you know has been touched by cancer uh, and, and acknowledge uh, what Terry did 43 years ago. Incredible. After all these years, mm-hmm. it still holds, gives people goosebumps yeah. and a, an opportunity to really, you know, put things into motion themselves uh, and, and make that difference. Thanks so much for your time, Fred. We appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Uh, thanks to everybody out there participating. Thank you. Fred Fox, brother of Terry Fox and manager of supporter relations with the Terry Fox Foundation. You can find out more online at terryfox.org.